Section 33 of The Natural History, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 7, by Pliny the Elder, translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 33, Chapters 47 to 70. Chapter 47, Whetstones. We must now pass on to the stones that are employed for handicrafts, and, first of all, whetstones for sharpening iron. Of these stones there are numerous varieties, the Cretan stones having been long held in the highest estimation, and the next best being those of Mount Tegetus and Laconia, both of which are used as hones and require oil. Among the water whetstones, the first rank belongs to those of Naxos, and the second to the stones of Armenia, both of them already mentioned. The stones of Cilicia are of excellent quality, whether used with oil or with water. Those of Arsinoe, too, are very good, but with water only. Whetstones have been found also in Italy, which, with water, give a remarkably keen edge. And from the countries beyond the Alps, we have the whetstones known as Passernices. To the fourth class belong the hones, which give an edge by the agency of human saliva and are much in use in barber shops. They are worthless, however, for all other purposes, in consequence of their soft and brittle nature. Those from the district of Laminium, in nearer Spain, are the best of the kind. Chapter 48. Tophus. Among the multitude of stones, which still remain undescribed, there is tophus, a material totally unsuited for building purposes, in consequence of its perishableness. Still, however, there are some localities which have no other, Carthage in Africa, for example. It is eaten away by the emanations from the sea, crumbled to dust by the wind, and shattered by the pelting of the rain. But human industry has found the means of protecting walls of houses built with it with a coating of pitch, as a plaster of lime would corrode it. Hence it is that we have the well-known saying that the Carthaginians use pitch for their houses and lime for their wines this last being the method used by them in the preparation of their must. In the territories of Fadena and Alba, in the vicinity of Rome, we find other kinds of soft stone, and in Umbria and Venetia there is a stone which admits of being cut with the teeth of a saw. These stones are easily to be worked and are capable of supporting a considerable weight if they are only kept sheltered from the weather. Rain, however, frost and dew split them to pieces, nor can they resist the humidity of the sea air. The stone of Tiber can stand everything except heat, which makes it crack. Chapter 49. The Various Kinds of Silex The black silex is, in general, the best, but in some localities it is the red, and occasionally the white, as in the Anacinian quarries at Tarquini, near Lake Volsinius, for example, and those at Statonia, the stone of which is proof against fire, even. These stones, sculpted for monumental purposes, are subject to no deterioration by lapse of time. Molds, too, are made from them, for the purpose of fusing copper. There is a green silex, also, which offers a most powerful resistance to the action of fire, but is never found in any large quantities, and, in all cases, in an isolated form, and not as a constituent part of solid rock. Of the other kinds, the pale silex is but rarely used for erections. Being of globular form, 
It is not liable to injury, but at the same time, it is insecure for building purposes, unless it is well braced and tightly held together. Nor yet does river silex offer any greater security, for it always has the appearance of being wet. Chapter 50. Other Stones Used for Building When the nature of stone is doubtful, the proper precaution is to quarry it in summer, and not use it for building before the end of a couple of years, leaving it in the meantime to be well seasoned by the weather. The slabs which have been damaged will be found to be better suited for the foundations underground, while those, on the other hand, which have remained uninjured, may be employed with safety and exposed to the open air even. Chapter 51. The Various Methods of Building The Greeks construct party walls, resembling those of brickwork, of hard stone or silex, squared. This kind of stonework is what they call a sodomon, it being pseudo-sodomon, when the wall is built of materials of unequal dimensions. A third kind of stonework is called emplecton, the two exteriors only being made with regularity, the rest of the material being thrown in at random. It is necessary that the stones should lie over one another alternately, in such a way that the middle of one stone meets the point of junction of the two below it, and this too in the middle of the wall, if possible, but if not, at all events, at the sides. When the middle of the wall is filled up with broken stones, the work is known as diatoikon. The reticulated kind of building, which is mostly in use at Rome, is very liable to crack. All buildings should be done by line and rule and ought to be strictly on the perpendicular. Chapter 52. Cisterns. Cisterns should be made of five parts of pure, gravelly sand, two of the very strongest quicklime, and fragments of silex, not exceeding a pound each in weight. When thus incorporated, the bottom and sides should be well beaten with iron rammers. The best plan, too, is to have the cisterns double, so that all the superfluities may settle in the inner cistern and the water filter through, as pure as possible, into the outer one. Chapter 53. Quicklime. Cato, the censor, disapproves of lime prepared from stones of various colors. That made of white stone is the best. Lime prepared from hard stone is the best for building purposes, and that from porous stone for coats of plaster. For both these purposes, lime made from silex is equally rejected. Stone that has been extracted from quarries furnishes a better lime than that collected from the beds of rivers, but the best of all is the lime that is obtained from molar stone, that being of a more unctuous nature than the others. It is something truly marvelous that quicklime, after the stone has been subjected to fire, should ignite on the application of water. Chapter 54 the various kinds of sand. Combinations of sand with lime. There are three kinds of sand. Fossil sand, to which one-fourth part of lime should be added, river sand, and sea sand, to both of which last, one-third of lime should be added. If, too, one-third of the mortar is composed of bruised earthenware, it will be all the better. Fossil sand is found in the districts that lie between the Apennines and the Padus, but not in parts beyond the sea. Chapter 55. Defects in Building. Plasters for Walls. The great cause of the fall of so many buildings in our city is that through a fraudulent abstraction of the lime, the rough work is laid without anything to hold it together. The older, too, the mortar is, the better it is in quality. In the ancient laws for the regulation of building, 
no contractor was to use mortar less than three months old. Hence it is that no cracks have disfigured the plaster coatings of their walls. These stuccos will never present a sufficiently bright surface unless there have been three layers of sanded mortar and two of marbled mortar upon that. In damp localities and places subject to exhalations from the sea, it is the best plan to substitute ground earthenware mortar for sanded mortar. In Greece, it is the practice first to pound the lime and sand used for plastering with wood pestles in a large trough. The test by which it is known that marbled mortar has been properly blended is it not adhering to the trowel, whereas if it is only wanted for whitewashing, the lime, after being well slaked with water, should stick like glue. For this last purpose, however, the lime should only be slaked in lumps. At Ellis, there is a temple of Minerva, which was pargetted, they say, by Panaeonus, the brother of Phidias, with a mortar that was blended with milk and saffron. Hence it is, that even at the present day, when rubbed with spittle on the finger, it yields the smell and flavor of saffron. Chapter 56. Columns. The several kinds of columns. The more closely columns are placed together, the thicker they appear to be. There are four different kinds of pillars. Those of which the diameter at the foot is one-sixth part of the height are called Doric. When the diameter is one-ninth, they are Ionic. And when it is one-seventh, Tuscan. The proportions in the Corinthian are the same as those of the Ionic, but they differ in the circumstance that the Corinthian capitals are of the same height as the diameter at the foot, a thing that gives them a more slender appearance, whereas in the Ionic column, the height of the capital is only one-third of the diameter at the foot. In ancient times, the rule was that the columns should be one-third of the breadth of the temple in height. It was in the Temple of Diana at Ephesus, as originally built, that spirals were first placed beneath and capitals added and it was determined that the diameter of the shafts should be one-eighth of their height, and that the spirals should be one-half of the diameter in height, the upper extremity of the shaft being one-seventh less in diameter than the foot. In addition to these columns, there are what are called attic columns, triangular and with equal sides. Chapter 57. Five Remedies Derived from Lime Lime is also employed very extensively in medicine. For this purpose, fresh lime is selected, which has not been slaked with water. Its properties are caustic, resolvent, and attractive, and it prevents serpiginous ulcers from spreading, being incorporated with vinegar and oil of roses for the purpose. When this has been effected, it is tempered with wax and oil of roses and applied to promote cicatrization. In combination with honey and liquid resin, or hog's lard, lime is curative of sprains and scrofulous sores. Chapter 58. Malta. Malta is a cement from fresh lime, lumps of which are quenched in wine and then pounded with hog's lard and figs, both of them mollifying substances. It is the most tenacious of all cements and surpasses stone in hardness. Before applying the malta, the substance upon which it is used must be well rubbed with oil. Chapter 50. Gypsum. Gypsum has a close affinity with limestone and there are numerous varieties of it. One kind is prepared from calcined stone, as in Syria, and at Thurai, for example. In Cyprus, and at Perhabia, gypsum is dug out of the earth, and at Timphaea, it is found just below the level of the soil. The stone that is calcined for this purpose ought to be very similar to alabastrites or else of a grain like that of marble. In Syria, they select the hardest stones for the purpose, 
and calcine them with cow dung to accelerate the process. Experience has proved, however, that the best plaster of all is that prepared from specular stone or any other stone that is similarly laminated. Gypsum, when moistened, must be used immediately as it hardens with the greatest rapidity. It admits, however, of being triturated over again and so reduced to powder. It is very useful for pargeting and has a pleasing effect when used for ornamental figures and wreaths in buildings. There is one remarkable fact connected with this substance. Caius Proculius, an intimate friend of the Emperor Augustus, suffering from violent pains in the stomach, swallowed gypsum and so put an end to his existence. Chapter 60. Pavements. The Acerotos Ecos. Pavements are an invention of the Greeks, who also practiced the art of painting them, till they were superseded by mosaics. In this last branch of art, the highest excellence has been attained by Sostus, who laid at Pergamus the mosaic pavement known as the Acerotos Ecos, from the fact that he there represented, in small squares of different colors, the remnants of a banquet lying upon the pavement, and other things which are usually swept away with a broom, they having all the appearance of being left there by accident. There is a dove also, greatly admired, in the act of drinking, and throwing the shadow of its head upon the water, while other birds are to be seen sunning and pluming themselves on the margin of a drinking bowl. Chapter 61. The First Pavements in Use at Rome. The first pavements, in my opinion, were those now known to us as barbaric and subdegulian pavements, a kind of work that was beaten down with the rammer, at least if we may form a judgment from the name that has been given to them. The first diamonded pavement at Rome was laid in the temple of Jupiter, Capitolinus, after the commencement of the Third Punic War. That pavements have come into common use before the Cimbric War, and that a taste for them was very prevalent, is evident from the line of Lucinius, with checkered emblems like a pavement marked. Chapter 62. Terrace Roof Pavements the Greeks have also invented terrace roof pavements and have covered their houses with them, a thing that may easily be done in the hotter climates, but a great mistake in countries where the rain is apt to become congealed. In making these pavements, the proper plan is to begin with two layers of boards running different ways and nailed at the extremities to prevent them from warping. Upon this planking, a rough work must be laid, one-fourth of which consists of pounded pottery, and upon this, another bed of rough work, two-fifths composed of lime, a foot in thickness, and well beaten down with the rammer. The nucleus is then laid down, in a bed six fingers in depth, and upon that, in large square stones, not less than a couple of fingers in thickness, an inclination being carefully observed of an inch and a half to every ten feet. This done, the surface is well rubbed down with a polishing stone. The general opinion is that oak should never be used for the planking, it being so very liable to warp, and it is considered a good plan to cover the boards with a layer of fern or chaff that they may be the better able to resist the action of the lime. It is necessary, too, before putting down the planking, to underset it with a bed of round pebbles. Wheat ear tessellated pavements are laid down in a similar manner. Chapter 63 Greekanic pavements. We must not omit here one other kind of pavement, that known as the Greekanic. The ground is well rammed down, and a bed of rough work, or else broken pottery, is then laid upon it. Upon the top of this, a layer of charcoal is placed, well trodden down with a mixture of sand, lime, and ashes, 
care being taken, by line and rule, to give it a uniform thickness of half a foot. The surface then presents the ordinary appearance of the ground, but if it is well rubbed with a polishing stone, it will have all the appearance of a black pavement. Chapter 64. At what period mosaic pavements were first invented, and what period arched roofs were first decorated with glass? Mosaic pavements were first introduced in the time of Scylla. At all events, there is still in existence a pavement formed of small segments which he ordered to be laid down in the Temple of Fortune at Prinesta. Since his time, these mosaics have left the ground for the arched roofs of houses, and they are now made of glass. This, however, is but a recent invention, for there can be no doubt that, when Agrippa ordered the earthenware walls of the hot baths, in the thermae which he was building at Rome, to be painted in encaustic, and had the other parts coated with pargetting, he would have had the arches decorated with mosaics in glass, if the use of them had been known, or, at all events, if from the walls of the theatre of Scarus, where it figured, as already stated, glass had by that time come to be used for the arched roofs of apartments. It will be as well, therefore, to give some account also of glass. Chapter 65. The Origin of Glass. In Syria, there is a region known as Phoenicia, adjoining to Judea and enclosing, between the lower ridges of Mount Carmelis, a marshy district known by the name of Candibia. In this district, it is supposed, rises the river Belus, which, after a course of five miles, empties itself into the sea near the colony of Ptolemaeus. The tide of this river is sluggish, and the river unwholesome to drink, but held sacred for the observance of certain religious ceremonials. Full of slimy deposits, and very deep, it is only at the reflux of the tide that the river discloses its sands, which, agitated by the waves, separate themselves from their impurities, and so become cleansed. It is generally thought that it is the acridity of the seawater that has this purgative effect upon the sand, and that without this action no use could be made of it. The shore upon which this sand is gathered is not more than half a mile in extent, and yet for many ages this was the only spot that afforded the material for making glass. The story is that a ship laden with nitra being moored upon this spot, the merchants, while preparing their repast upon the seashore, finding no stones at hand for supporting their cauldrons, employed for the purpose some lumps of nitre which they had taken from the vessel. Upon its being subjected to the action of the fire, in combination with the sand of the seashore, they beheld transparent streams flowing forth of a liquid hitherto unknown. This, it is said, was the origin of glass. Chapter 66. Various Kinds of Glass and the mode of making it. In the process of time, as human industry is ingenious in discovering, it was not content with the combination of nitra, but magnet stone began to be added as well, from the impression that it attracts liquefied glass as well as iron. In a similar manner, too, brilliant stones of various descriptions came to be added in the melting, and at last, shells and fossil sand. Some authors tell us that the glass of India is made with broken crystal, and that, in consequence, there is none that can be compared to it. Infusing it, light and dry wood is used for fuel. Cyprian copper and nitra being added to the melting, nitra of Ophir, more particularly. It is melted like copper in contiguous furnaces, and a swarthy mass of unctuous appearance is the result. Of such a penetrating nature is the molten glass, that it will cut to the very bone any part of the body which it may come near, and that, too, before it is even felt. 
This mass is again subjected to fusion in the furnace for the purpose of coloring it, after which the glass is either blown into various forms, turned in a lathe, or engraved like silver. Sidon was formerly famous for its glass houses, for it was this place that first invented mirrors. Such was the ancient method of making glass, but at the present day there is found very white sand for the purpose at the mouth of the river Volturnus in Italy. It spreads over an extent of six miles upon the seashore that lies between Cumae and Laternum and is prepared for use by pounding it with a pestle and mortar. Which done, it is mixed with three parts of nitre, either by weight or measure, and when fused, is transferred to another furnace. Here it forms a mass of what is called hemonitrum, which is again submitted to fusion and becomes a mass of pure white glass. Indeed, at the present day, throughout the Gallic and Spanish provinces even, we find sand subjected to a similar process. In the reign of Tiberius, it is said, a combination was devised which produced a flexible glass, but the manufactory of the artist was totally destroyed, we are told, in order to prevent the value of copper, silver, and gold from being depreciated. This story, however, was for a long time more widely spread than well authenticated. But be it as it may, it is of little consequence, for in the time of the Emperor Nero, there was a process discovered by which two small glass cups were made of the kind called petroti, the price of which was no less than 6,000 sesterces. Chapter 67. Obsidian Glass and Obsidian Stone. Among the various kinds of glass, we may also reckon obsidian glass, a substance very similar to the stone which Opsius discovered in Ethiopia. This stone is of a very dark color and sometimes transparent, but it is dull to the sight and reflects, when attached as a mirror to walls, the shadow of the object rather than the image. Many persons use it for jewelry, and I myself have seen solid statues in this material of the late Emperor Augustus of very considerable thickness. That prince consecrated in the Temple of Concord as something marvelous four figures of elephants made of obsidian stone. Tiberius Caesar, too, restored to the people of Heliopolis as an object of ceremonial worship an image in this stone which had been found among the property left by one of the prefects of Egypt. It was a figure of Menelaus, a circumstance which goes far towards proving that the use of this material is of more ancient date than is generally supposed, confounded as it is at the present day with glass, by reason of its resemblance. Xenocrates says that obsidian stone is found in India also, and in Somnium in Italy, and that it is a natural product of Spain upon the coasts which border on the ocean. There is an artificial obsidian stone made of colored glass for services for the table, and there is also a glass that is red all through and opaque, known as hematinum. A dead white glass, too, is made, as also other kinds in imitation of marine color, hyacinthine, sapphire, and every other tint. Indeed, there is no material of a more pliable nature than this, or better suited for coloring. Still, however, the highest value is set upon glass that is entirely colorless and transparent, as nearly as possible resembling crystal, in fact. For drinking vessels, glass has quite superseded the use of silver and gold, but it is unable to stand heat unless a cold liquid is poured in first. And yet, we find that globular vessels, filled with water, when brought in contact with the rays of the sun, become heated to such a degree as to cause articles of clothing to ignite. 
When broken, too, glass admits of being joined by the agency of heat, but it cannot be wholly fused without being pulverized into small fragments, as we see done in the process of making the small checkers, known as abaculi, for mosaic work, some of which are of variegated colors and of different shapes. If glass is fused with sulfur, it will become as hard as stone. Chapter 68 Marvelous Facts Connected with Fire Having now described all the creations of human ingenuity, reproductions, in fact, of nature by the agency of art, it cannot but recur to us with a feeling of admiration that there is hardly any process which is not perfected through the intervention of fire. Submit to its action some sandy soil, and in one place it will yield glass, in another silver, in another minium, and in others again lead and its several varieties, pigments, and numerous mendicaments. It is through the agency of fire that stones are melted into copper, by fire that iron is produced and subdued to our purposes, by fire that gold is purified, by fire, too, that the stone is calcined, which is to hold together the walls of our houses. Some materials, again, are all the better for being repeatedly submitted to the action of fire, and the same substance will yield one product at the first fusion, another at the second, and another at the third. Charcoal, when it has passed through fire and has been quenched, only begins to assume its active properties. And, when it might be supposed to have been reduced to annihilation, it is then that it has its greatest energies. An element of this, of immense, of boundless power, and as to which it is a matter of doubt whether it does not create even more than it destroys. Chapter 69 Three Remedies Derived from Fire and from Ashes Fire even has certain medicinal virtues of its own. When pestilences prevail, in consequence of the obscuration of the sun, it is a well-known fact that if fires are lighted, they are productive of beneficial results in numerous ways. Empedocles and Hippocrates have proved this in several passages. Quote, For convulsions or contusions of the viscera, end quote, says Marcus Varro, for it is his own words that I use, quote, Let the hearth be your medicine box. For lye of ashes, taken from thence, mixed with your drink, will effect a cure. Witness the gladiators, for example, who, when disabled of the games, refresh themselves with this drink. End quote. Carbuncle, too, a kind of disease which, as already stated, has recently carried off two persons of consular rank, admits of being successfully treated with oak charcoal, triturated with honey. So true it is that things which are despised, even, and looked upon as so utterly destitute of all virtues, have still their own remedial properties, charcoal and ashes, for example. Chapter 70. Prodigies Connected with the Hearth I must not omit, too, one portentous fact connected with the hearth and famous in Roman history. In the reign of Tarquinus Priscus, it is said, there appeared upon his hearth a resemblance of the male generative organ in the midst of the ashes. The captive Ocresia, a servant of Queen Tanakil, who happened to be sitting there, arose from her seat in a state of pregnancy and became the mother of Servius Tullius, who eventually succeeded to the throne. It is stated, too, that while the child was sleeping in the palace, a flame was seen playing round his head, the consequence of which was that it was believed that the lar of the household was his progenitor. It was owing to this circumstance, we are informed, that the Compitalia games in honor of the lares were instituted. Summary. Remedies mentioned. 89. 
Facts and Narratives, 434. Roman authors quoted Marcus Varro, Caelius, Galba, Cincius, Mucianus, Nepos Cornelius, Lucas Piso, Quirinius Tubero, Fabius Vestalis, Annius Fatalius, Fabianus, Seneca, Cato the Censor, Vitruvius. Foreign authors quoted Theophrastes, Pasitellus, King Juba, Nicander, Sodicus, Sudenus, Alexander Polyhistor, Apion, Plistonicus, Durus, Herodotus, Euhemerus, Aristagoras, Dionysus, Artemidorus, Butidorus, Antisthenes, Demetrius, Demotilus, Lysaeus. End of section 33.